Good to see each of you here this morning, this wonderful Christmas morning. Is it crisp enough for you outside? Now, I got to tell you, uh, one of our young men from the uh, Teen Challenge is with us today, who actually all of them are here, but one of them, uh, he came today dressed in his native Massachusetts clothing. Stand up, young man. Let's let him see. He's got a fishing shirt on and shorts. And that's the full extent. <laughs> I love that. That's wonderful. And then outside by the uh, east entrance, uh, Kim and Madison were out there standing in the cold for 30 minutes at least, uh, greeting people as they came in. Now that's sacrifice. And I went out and said to them, if you want to come inside and greet people from inside, feel free to do it. And they, they, they stayed, man. They're troopers. So uh, the price that we pay to worship the Lord on Christmas Sunday morning, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to step out of the routine, to, to actually uh, place worship of God above even family tradition. It doesn't mean that family tradition tradition can't happen. Uh, it still has happened for some of you this morning, and for others, it'll even go on into the afternoon, but placing a value on the worship of God, and uh, that's just a wonderful uh, spiritual maturity in the life of the body, and I want to thank you for being here. Uh, I, today, I want to focus uh, on a text that uh, I just that came into that I thought, man, this really does address the Christmas story from a heavenly perspective. So take your Bible if you have one, and if you don't, just follow along. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul shares with us this great passage under the anointing of the Holy Spirit that adds color to the Christmas story in regard to the incarnation of God. And we typically read the story of Christ and his birth from a historically Palestinian view, right? We get the view of the Hebrews, uh, or we get the view from the Romans. But we don't normally look at the story of Jesus' birth from heaven. And that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. It's interesting, from our view on earth, ground zero... What we experience, uh, what human beings experienced when Jesus was born, and then to think and ponder what God experienced, what heaven experienced as Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. Incredible. So the text is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We'll start there and go through verse 8 just to read so you have a little context. Uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is a text on the self-emptying of God in order to become man. It's very important, church, to our worship, even right now this morning, because what was actually going on when that little baby was born was also going on from he heaven's vantage point. There's a sequence, and there's, there's several points here. We could make it a, a five-point sermon, a four-point sermon, a three-point sermon very easily. I'm going to make it a two-point sermon. We're going to go a little shorter today, but I believe that I'm going to be able to hit everything uh, in two points. Two steps as God became man, as God intended the world to be born in Bethlehem. Listen, two steps that occurred in the incarnation of God. And we might say that in, the re in reality, this is the real Christmas story. Not that the other story's uh, uh, unreal. It is very real in a physical sense. But this is the behind-the-scenes story. This is the story that you want to understand so that on Christmas Day, your worship of God is more fulfilling. It takes you deeper in understanding. And that's what we're going to read right now. So... First, the first of two uh, steps that occur in the incarnation, number one, God abandoned a sovereign position. God abandoned a sovereign position. Let's look at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, in the form of God, in a godly position, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So when the Lord came into the world, he abandoned a position of sovereignty. Uh, a person's, uh, their, their essence is found in their being. And your being is your essence. And your being is not something that you can change. It's the essence of you. Now, this is a different sermon that I'm going to preach in January, but you might be able to put on makeup, ladies. You might be able to have some surgery done, some facial surgery that changes the look on the outside. You might even have a surgery that supposedly changes your gender, which it does not. But you might have those surgeries, but the, the essence of who you are cannot and will not change. The essence of Jesus is God. He is God. And that did not change in the incarnation. When the Lord came into the world, he abandoned the position of his sovereignty. He didn't abandon and lose his sovereignty. What the text says is that Jesus, in his essential being, was in the form of God. In other words, he has always, he is always, and will always exist in the form of God. That has never changed, never changed as he came, and will never change in eternity future. You, that's why in John chapter 
8, verse 58, to the Jews, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I am God. I always am. That never changes. He is literally the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature or essence or being. He is the express image of God, the Bible says. He is literally the one who is God. And by the way, our entire Christian faith rests on this absolute truth about Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, Paul reminds us he is the image. Literally, he is the replica. He is the duplicate of the invisible God. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it summarizes it so well. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So what's the mystery of godliness? Here it is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Was in the form of God. In that word form, the verse in verse 6, it really enforces something. The Greek word form is much different than the English usage of the word form. When we think of form, you might think in the construction world, of a form that you pour concrete in so that when the concrete hardens, you take away the wood, the plywood, and you now have the form. But the form itself was the structure of the plywood for a footer, for whatever it is you're building. We see it differently. We might see a form as a piece of paper that you fill out. But the Greek understanding of the word form is far different. It refers to the, it, the word is, by the way, morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E, morphe. And in the Greek, uh, it refers to the deep, inner, essential, abiding nature of something. When we say form, we could be meaning that he was in the form of something, but he wasn't really that form. The Greek term morphe means the essential nature. So while he might be uh, in the Greek schemata, uh, which is a picture of or a schematic, he looked, he was human, but he was still morphe, very much in his inner essence and being, he was God. The whole time Jesus was on earth, he was fully God. That is really important that we understand that and that we believe that. Otherwise, if Jesus went to the cross simply as a man, having lost his godness when he came in human form, then all that he did, including the cross, was simply nothing more than a humanitarian effort. Then we would say, like the Unitarian Universalist Church, that the meaning of Christmas is that we should carry the attitude of Jesus, who was a prophet that lived on the earth and did good things, and we should carry that attitude forward. I'm sorry, that is not who Jesus is. Jesus on earth was God. And Jesus, God, went to the cross 
and redeemed lost sinners who were absolutely desperate for help. That A man can't do that. Only God can do that. So when you think of little baby Jesus lying in a manger, you have to connect the dots back to Godhead, back to the fullness of God. Here's what I mean. That little baby Jesus came for one purpose to this earth. To seek and save lost people. Baby Jesus with those little baby, how many of you love holding a baby? There's nothing like it, you know. The smell a little baby. Oh my goodness, smell that little forehead, you know. And then you hold them and you put your thumb and they wrap their whole finger. Their fingers can't even touch. They're so small. The delicate, tender little fingers of Jesus. God gave him those little tiny fingers for one purpose. To be nailed to a cross. Nailed to a cross. That little tiny head that you just want to grab. I, I love I, all, all the little grandbabies, you know, that we have, the Lord has blessed us with, and we're so thankful for each and every one. And I'll take them when they're first born, uh, and I'll hold them like this, their feet up against my, 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 be- my big fat belly, and I take my hand and put it behind their head. Literally, my fingers can go all the way around to their forehead from behind, little tiny head was given Jesus for one reason, to have a crown of thorns pressed into it. I want us to get the real picture from heaven of Jesus being made incarnate. This was not just a baby. This was not just a little baby lying in a manger. This is God, fully God, in human form, The schemata changed. The morphe never changed. So what does it mean when it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? It means he didn't cling to his unchangeable essence of being God, even though he was still God. Here's the point. Jesus didn't give up his divine essence that he had with God the Father in heaven just so he could come down here in the form of a man. People believe that. That he gave it up. He, he didn't have it. And he had to give it up so he could be a man. That's, that's bad theology. That is not true. He was fully God while he was also fully man. He just didn't, here it is in the text, he didn't grasp at it. Being in human form, but yet still God, he didn't grasp his godness. He didn't yank on it to try to hold on to it. He just, it was there. It was always him. But he truly emptied himself of what he knew that he was. The second person of the Trinity could never lose his nature just so he could be fully man. He is part of the eternal Godhead. That never changes. Past, present, future. So this is at the heart of the whole Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is eternally God. He doesn't need to seize upon Godhead 
nor does he need to clutch it as something he might lose because it is his essential nature. It's who he is. So when he became a man, he didn't rely on his Godhead. He, he left it alone. I'm here as a man, even though I am still fully God. The remarkable thing about his incarnation is that he, and then there it is in the next verse, he emptied himself. The verb actually means to pour out until it's all gone, until it's empty, until uh, everything's dumped. Oh, wait, you just said that he didn't lose it. You're, now you're saying he emptied himself of his, of his God. No, no, he did not. He can't. That's his essence. That's his being. He couldn't release himself from, his, from being God. So what exactly does it mean that he emptied himself? What did he give up? Well, he poured out his glory. John 17, 4 tells us that. It also tells us in Isaiah 53, 3 that he, he poured out his beauty. His beauty. When Jesus was a human being, you would think if he was God, and God in human form... He's going to look a whole lot different than the rest of us. He's going to be perfect in every way where we're not. And no blemish, no nothing on him. His hair is going to be, you know, Hollywood movie star hair. He's going to have just everything, this perfect muscular body, you know, this perfect man body. Far from that. Far from that. Isaiah said he gave up something of his beauty. He actually became so ugly that were, there, were no, there was no beauty in him that we should desire him, the scripture says. Now that's reference to the cross. After he had been pummeled and beaten, there was nothing about him that would attract you to him. He was unrecognizable. You know what happens when you take a good beating in the face? You swell up. He didn't look human. But even before he went to the cross, as a human being, he was not a handsome guy. We don't get any of that from the text. If he had walked in this morning, you would look at him and think, well, I don't know him, and you'd look away. It wouldn't be like you're attracted to him by his looks. That's what he emptied himself of. In heaven, do you know how beautiful Jesus is? Just imagine how beautiful God is. But on earth he gave all that up. That's what he poured out. That's what he emptied. His glory, he emptied his beauty. He emptied himself of the right to enjoy all the riches of eternal glory. I mean, think, this is God in heaven. He has all glory in heaven. He has all the riches of heaven. All of it. That's what he emptied himself of. Hmm. He also gave up his favorable, favorable you know, position with the Father to the degree that on the cross he cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had all the privileges of heaven. He chose to become a servant to the Father and a servant and a Savior to sinners for the sake of sinners, that the sake of the glory of the Father might be fulfilled. He's like a king who takes off his robe, walks down off of the platform, away from the throne, and as he steps off of the platform, immediately he's given rags to wear. 
And he's as common looking as all the peasants. That's what incarnation really represents. That is what your God, the Father in heaven, did for you. He gave himself and he paid the price for you. Let's look at the second point, the last point. Not only did he abandon a sovereign position, he accepted a servant's place. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human or in the likeness of men. So he didn't just look like a servant, he really became one. He became a servant. Now, still God, Morphe, doesn't change. Schemata does. Now he's in the form of a servant. Isaiah 52 and 50, uh, verses 13 and 14, he's called a suffering servant. In Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8, the Messiah would be a servant. He wasn't just playing a role. He wasn't just like in a play. He wasn't just pretending to be. If anybody was ever a servant, he was a servant. He took upon the morphe, the essential inner essence of being God, and he then became, in schemata, a servant. The sovereign master of the universe became a true servant of God. As truly as he was God, so he was a servant of God. Luke chapter 22, verse 27, let me read for you. He said, I am in the midst of you as one who serves in Matthew 20, 28, and Mark 20, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And then, of course, what a dramatic depiction that Jesus gave his disciples when on the night in the upper room, he knelt before them and he washed their feet. God, literally, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, but not grasping his godness taking on fully man as a servant, gets down on his knees and washes the filthy, stinking feet of his disciples. So when you think about the birth of Christ, you think about the incarnation. You think about how he abandoned the sovereign position and accepted a servant's place on this earth. That's the beauty. This little baby lying in a manger who was going to grow up, and in his growing up, Becoming a man in his manhood would do one thing, serve others as he serves the Lord. There's the picture for us. This is Christmas morning. We celebrate Christ. What are you celebrating about Christ? Just that he was a baby lying in a manger? Hopefully it's a lot more than that. No, you're celebrating that God became incarnate. You're celebrating that that incarnate God in the flesh took on the form of a servant and modeled for you what it looks like to serve the Father and to serve one another. And for what purpose? What's the end goal here of God the Father? So that God the Father might place on his Son all the sin of those who know that they're lost in sin without any hope of being saved.
you can't save yourself, and they know it. So God put that on Christ. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is why he came, so he could die. He could die. So the question on this Christmas morning, because see, it's a day of exchanging gifts, is it not? Hopefully you've done some of that already this morning. But what's the greatest gift that you've experienced? It is the gift of salvation, right? Do you look at that from heaven's view? The gift that God gave you? Have you considered what it cost God to give you the gift of salvation? Let me give you an insight. It costs God himself in order to show you how much he loves you. How much does God love me? By how much, I know how much he loves me by how much he's willing to pay for me. What did he pay for me? Himself, Jesus, God. God died so that you might have the gift of salvation. If that doesn't well up in your heart into appreciation, thanksgiving, and a spirit of giving back, which is what? Worship. Worship is nothing more than placing worth and you're placing worth back upon the one who loved you, who died for you, who became a sacrificial gift for your life, for your eternity. Now all of a sudden, we have a reason this Christmas morning to worship God. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you this morning that as we gather it would be easy just to kind of fly right through this aspect of Christmas morning and stick with the traditional gifts and the traditional uh, 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 celebrations and our family traditions. It, it would be easy to do that, but we would be missing the most important thing about the very day we're celebrating, and that is that God became man, fully God, fully man, so that he might go to the cross and make the greatest exchange that we could ever experience. I gave him my sins, and he gave me his righteousness. Oh, God, that just leads us in the right heart of worship this morning, and we're thankful to you for that. And I pray that, Lord, each family that's here this morning and each family and individual that is watching by live stream would have a very blessed day on Christmas Day, the Lord's Day, as they worship you, as they take what we've learned about the servant of Christ and we become servants, not only to our family and to our friends, but we become servants right back to you. That's a great way to enter the new year, seeing ourselves as servants of Christ. 
Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. How good it is that the brethren and sisters dwell together in unity. Amen? Amen. Thank you for being here, all of you. And I pray that uh, you have a wonderful rest of the day as you celebrate in your family traditions. I will tell you that we had a neat experience in the life of our church family this morning. Uh, am I okay to say or not? No? Okay, I won't. I don't want to... No? Oh, okay. Uh, Scott and Deb Walker's daughter, Emily, was proposed to this morning on the beach. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Jason is a great young man. And uh, man, that, you know, it takes nerve to get on your knee before a, a girl and ask her to be your wife. He did it in the frigid cold, and she went along. She must really like this guy. So we're excited for them. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Praise God. All right. God bless each of you. Have a wonderful day, and uh, may the Lord bless you the rest of the day.